right, welcome back to another edition of Mormon Expression. I'm your host, John Larson, and today I'm here with uh, my lovely co-host, Zilpha. Hello. Hi, Zilpha. And um, t- today, uh, we usually do this at night, and it's the afternoon, so I'm, I'm, all, I'm thrown off. T- today we are, um, we are doing a podcast I've been looking forward to um, quite a while. Um, the, the wonderful people at uh, Signature Books... Um, and Tom Kimball uh, provided me a couple weeks ago with an advanced copy of a new book that is coming out this week um, called The Development of LDS Temple Worship, 1846-2000, to 2000, A Documentary History by Devery S. Anderson. Devery, welcome to uh, Mormon Expression. Well, thank you. Glad to be here. Well, we're glad to have you. Now, so you've been in the um, sort of Mormon history circles for a while, uh, you co-edited the uh, Joseph Smith's Quorum of the Anointed and the Nauvoo Endowment um, Companies. And did you you did those with? Um, uh, is it? Uh, I always I can't remember how to pronounce his name. It's uh, Gary Bergera. Ber- is it Bergera with a like a J yeah. sound? Yeah, I've always pronounced it incorrectly. Then, uh, but this one you did on your own, right? Now, now, maybe we can give sort of a little um, um, background into this project. Um, the, so this is the third volume with the other two that I mentioned. So what, what, what is sort of the genesis of, of this project? Well, the, the three volumes um, each uh, cover a specific period that, that really stand on their own. Um, the, 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 and, and when we first conceived this, it was really two provide a documentary history of and include the entire scope of LDS Temple Worship, but the division, I think, of the three volumes was very appropriate. The the first one, Joseph Cormier Anointed, really focuses on on his era and his introduction of, of temple ordinances. And even though it uh, overlaps into the period of the transition a little bit between that Brigham Young and Joseph Smith, you really get raw Joseph Smith in that volume. You really get a sense of what he had envisioned, what he thought was important, and it went forth from there. The second volume, and that covers the period 1842 to 1845, prior to the uh, opening of the Nauvoo Temple. So the temple artists were performed above his store in Willard Richard's home and other homes in the Nauvoo area. The second volume really does cover that transition very well between Joseph Smith and Brigham Young and focuses on Nauvoo, on the Nauvoo Temple, because here the temple ordinances emerged from just being kind of a secret uh, elite group who were receiving these ordinances to the general church membership. So it was kind of sprung on them all of a sudden. They saw the Nauvoo Temple um, being built over the years and understood that it was going to be of great importance. But here they finally got to go in and and... Uh, experience that for themselves, and the temple was only open for two months, so it was the last couple of months that the church was headquartered in Nauvoo, they were finishing the temple, they were rushing people through the temple, so that era there um, stands on its own, too, because it laid the groundwork for what came after that in in Utah. And the third volume, then, uh, covers 1846 to the year 2000, so we've got 150 years of temple history crammed into one volume, or the previous volume only covered two months. And so, <laughs> much larger this time, taking in a much larger period, but this really deals with um, uh, the development, as the title says, from what we see late in, in Nauvoo, and when the church moved west, when 
they finally got to the point of having more than one temple, the challenges that came with having several temples in Utah and then internationally. And so um, this volume, for me, I think, is uh, the one that a lot of us who live during this de- a lot of this development and a lot of the changes in that can relate to and, and find more meaningful, I think, than just the historical ones, uh, portions of the first two volumes. But the... Uh, with Smith Pettit uh, and their interest in publishing documentary history's primary sources are on so many subjects. Um, this one, I think, really stands out to really, these three anyway, really um, show you not only the development of, of temple worship itself, but it just it sheds so much light on the church in general, uh, how the hierarchy uh, views things, how it prompts them to make changes, uh, in trying to keep these uh, ordinances and that relevant to a growing church, uh, an international church, and a and a youthful church membership, um, those challenges really stand out, and I think it gives meaning to the whole thing. And um, so that's kind of it in a nutshell. But it's really you know thank Smith Pettit for their passion in in publishing primary sources. Yeah, you know, when I when I first heard about this volume from Tom, I was so excited. I went to Zilpha and said, "This is the missing book. This is the book that's been that's been there's this this hole. You know, the 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 temple worship and everything around the temple is so important and so central to Mormon worship, and yet in most of the the writings, it's just simply missing. Um, and you know, like you say, this isn't like an an uh, an anti or a pro or anything book it's just the the data sort of in the raw of of what happened and it was just it was just fascinating to read and i really want to underline one of the things you said i started reading it thinking oh this i'm going to learn all this stuff about the temple but what i end up walking away with more than anything is this view into how the church leadership itself matured and emerged because these are internal communications and letters to people and and you can really see sort of the 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 moving from the Joseph Smith Church to what it is today, and that that was a fascinating overview. Okay, yes, and uh, and thank you for that. And I uh, that's exactly how I see it. And that's and seeing these three volumes together, um, just the scope and uh, and, I, and especially the third one, which I guess I'm excited about right now because the other two are almost six years old, and this one's. Um, Exciting because it's new, but also because of uh, just the amount of material covered. Yeah, um, how do... I don't get tired of reading this one. So no, <laughs> it's no, the kind you can read from cover to cover, not just for research. So how did the um, research trying to find the original documents and all these letters for this book compare to the research you did for the last two? Because it seems to me like 150 years, and then trying to get more recent. Um, you know, documentation would be really difficult. How did you go about doing that? Well, it was uh, over time. You could, I guess, there was just a sense that from examining a lot of diaries uh, for certain periods, um, and other, and kind of building on the groundwork others had laid. Leo you know, David Berger had a uh, book uh, on um, the history of temple worship as well. Uh, Mysteries of Godliness, which Signature also published, and uh, he, he'd done a couple of articles and dialogue, uh, one on the history of the Second Anointing and, and the later one, four years later, on the history of the endowment. And so some of these sources, at least their 
the knowledge of the sources was there, or at least uh, from some of those sources, you knew where others could be found from contemporary uh, diarists and others uh, whose, up, you know, where, where certain person's work would be familiar. Um, and you knew that someone else had written a diary or had gone to the temple around the same time. From that groundwork, really, from Berger, it kind of gave you a little bit of a pattern uh, to go by to be able to find some of this stuff. Um, the, the Berger papers did house a lot of things that were uh, no longer available, at least in the archives, stuff that wasn't restricted under the Camelot period of the Arrington years, at least the early Arrington years, when Michael Quinn uh, was able to uh, see so many sources, first presidency minutes and things like that that are no longer available. Um, David Berger did a lot of research around that same time. So the Berger papers had a lot of material in them that we were able to, to use. Others were um, just gleaned from diaries. A lot of them were, were gleaned from diaries um, over other projects. Kind of how it is with historians. You'll be researching one thing and you come across these other little tidbits and you <laughs> kind of make notations of those and save them for a rainy day. And the rainy day came along, you know, <laughs> when uh, wanting to do this book. And so you kind of become aware of stuff that way. Um, and then from there, you just kind of probe further and other, other sources become available. Um, just like I say, your contemporaries of the source that you're originally looking at. And so, uh, there was a challenge though in just being able to, uh, uh, glean, I guess, especially the Burger Papers, where he has so much information in there. And um, even though you know the stuff is there, to just uh, to glean from those sources sometimes takes a while and to verify the authenticity. Um, did that by, some, in some cases, finding a source that was available to him and then checking another source who uh, would have independently uh, transcribed it in the 70s or whenever it was open as well and making those uh, comparisons. Because um, you want to do that in a case where you don't have access to the direct source, to the original uh, diary, for example, and someone's transcription of it, that's when it gets a little tricky. So that independent verification always uh, comes in handy and is important. Yeah, you know, I, I think... When I um, first became really interested in church history myself, I, I limited myself to primary sources, basically. And I've read a lot of apologists who also will question every source, you know. So it seems almost in Mormonism and Mormon history that um, being very careful with your sources is of paramount importance. And um, this sort of documentary history becomes um, extremely important because people don't necessarily believe secondhand accounts. Or reinterpretations right. of accounts. Exactly. I, I thought that... a lot of times people don't because they just don't want to believe it. You know, they think, oh, this, <laughs> this, so therefore I'm going to just question the source automatically. It's just kind of a nature of protection. Right. Right. So um, with the two volumes, um, and I, this one's still in its um, early days, what has been the reaction? Um, have you received any negative reaction from the apologist community from the official church? Um, no, none yet. Now, once the book is out and more available to just then just those who've had the chance to have the advanced reading copy, we may uh, hear a few things like that. But uh, I, I, I hope not too much of that. I, I hope people will appreciate the importance of the work, even if they don't like maybe um, you know if, if it's some, 
people you know, have so many different views about the temple, what's sensitive and what isn't. What's perfectly fine to one person is overly sensitive to another. And, and so and if there's going to be some negative reaction, it may just be based solely on someone's opinion about the appropriateness of the material, but not the accuracy of it. So right. how, I'm hoping how, that's what we'll see. How did you um, select? I, I assume that you had more material than than what you put in the book, and so, or or did you just put everything you found in the book, or how did you select for what to put? Well, um, didn't put everything because for a couple of reasons. One, had to be concerned about the size of the book. Um, publishers always like you to scale down stuff if it's too repetitive and that. So you, you trim away the fat, I guess, in these uh, instances, um, and not the really good stuff. A lot of it was repetitive. Like, for example, in using the General Handbook of Instructions, mm-hmm. which was later on a source of a lot of the material. And, and at first, we were going to just repeat um, everything they said about the temple in every uh, volume of the, uh, every edition of the handbook. But once we did that and realized that, you know, in cases where things hadn't changed at all or there wasn't any kind of a modification in what the handbook had to say about a subject, we would go ahead and either delete those and maybe note something about them in a footnote or just delete them altogether. But by deleting them, it didn't change anything about the flow of, of the development of the temple and policies and that because, uh, like I say, it was repetition that we did away with. Mm-hmm. Um there are other sources, and, and offhand I can't think of which ones, but there are some where uh, one diarist, would, when talking about a not his own his or her own personal experience, because we tried to keep those, but if they were talking about some general uh, change, uh, we didn't need too many people saying the same thing about right. that. One or two was enough to make the point. And, and but a lot of that was really for size considerations. You know, want to keep the book affordable, and and that that's always a concern. Right. And what about um, sensitive topics? Did did you come across anything that you just couldn't put in because people would get offended? Um, yes, the consideration was um, if there's something in there that somebody had gone to the temple had had specifically covenanted not to talk about, um, and if if there was some wording from uh, those specific. Uh, covenants or, or promises that were, uh, were put in a diary. Sometimes it was only just a handful of words. I think we figured total it was like 15 words hmm. uh, for any total of the sources that we cited where a word here or a word there was was uh, edited out um, for those reasons. Now, some people, of course, will think that there have always been several, I guess, schools of thought on on what's appropriate to talk about from a from a faithful Latter-day Saint perspective. Some feel that, well, anything you talk about, it, anything in the temple is off-limits because uh, you don't want to cast your pearls before swine, so to speak. And to some, you know, no, the only stuff that's uh, off-limits is the stuff you promise you won't talk about, and then the rest just use wisdom and that. But from a historian's perspective, um, pretty much everything's on the table, but you do at the same time want to consider at least um, uh, the feelings of those uh, who would have made, you know, you, you kind of get to the point of just, um, like I say, if we accommodated everybody on this, we wouldn't have written anything. You know, we could <laughs> right. really have done the book at all. <laughs> so we had, to, um, from a historian's perspective, yes, this is, a, this is legitimate 
stuff that's le- that's legitimate to talk about. Um, the the church wants people to, to have a curiosity about the temple. Um, that's why we build them on you know the highest hill and light them up at night for everybody to see. Um, and you know, come close to getting in a wreck over on the freeway sometimes as your gaze at them and that. So there there is a desire that people want to know and have a curiosity whether they're in the church uh, or not. And so from a, so that, that does, I think, um, invite scrutiny. But when it's respectful, that's fine. And from a historian's perspective, I think um, it's pretty much all on the table. But like I say, you know, there were a few things just for, for overly sensitive uh, people who would have maybe a legitimate uh, complaint um, about that. And this would, I think, at the same time, allow more people to feel comfortable examining the book and wanted to have that as well. Now, I noticed you didn't use any um, oh, uh, negative or anti-sources, you know, like Steinhaus or any of those others. Was that? The, I assume that was a conscious decision to stay with the, the faithful sources. Yeah, because the history, this history really, you know, could be written through faithful sources, uh, friendly sources who had a had a had a passion for the temple, um, and that passion led them to, like George, in the case of George Richards, led him to uh, uh, feel there was a need for change in that. So his motive was a positive one, at least you know for the temple. Uh, but at the same time, he had concerns and uh, brought these concerns to the hierarchy and that. So. Um, so that but the whole development that we uh, tried to include in here could be done purely from friendly sources, and the perspective from it, I think, is is really good. I don't think anything was. Um, um, you know, I'm just trying to think of it right now. If there was anything that would have been, uh, uh, you know, in any way the book could have been benefited by any of these other sources, and and I don't, I really don't think that it, it could have been. I think it would have satisfied some curiosity about specific wording of covenants and that. Um, but that's not what we were really trying to do. It's showing the development of the, the temple. You didn't really need to get into those specifics anyway. Um, I like seeing how the hierarchy wrestled with certain questions and, and that. And that, uh, that was how that development came to be. And all that's very clear from the sources that we use. Yeah, so this might be a good time to get into some some of those. Uh, you mentioned the hierarchy um, wrestling. The the one that I noticed that was most prominent seemed to be the issue of women and their endowments, especially when they're married to um, non-believers or, or lapsed Mormons or whatever. Um, you see, right. through the years, they go back and forth and back and forth. The you know the policy for a long time was that a, a woman who is married to a non-Mormon couldn't do her endowment. But there were several reversals in that that I, I noticed over the years. Like they would go back and forth and back and forth on that. Yes, they did. And it, it did go back and forth until uh, I think 1986 when it has uh, uh, the policy states constant now that you know, a woman with a non Mormon or a uh, inactive spouse can receive her endowment. But yeah, that went back and forth. They felt that there were. Um, some of the problems and challenges with that were that uh, women would be in a position to have to reveal the ceremonies to a non-Mormon or unbelieving spouse. 
Right. Um, Why wasn't... They didn't have that same concern over uh, men who married non member <laughs> exactly. women. Yeah, I don't understand that. N- never once did that, so that issue come up. going to you know, result in a, you know, uh, some kind of a physical fight over it, but if it was just over persuasion and, and that type of thing, then the men would have been in the same boat as the women, but they didn't seem concerned about that at all. Yeah, I, yeah. I think at one point they said something like, um, well, you know, if a woman is asked by her husband, she has to tell him, but a man doesn't have to tell him anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it gives you a, a bit of a look into how they regarded, you know, relationships like that. That women um, were in a position to have to obey their husbands, or they, they even thought that that was the appropriate way a relationship should work. And so, uh, so yeah, it, it, in uh, in seeing the development of this of the temple policies in this case, it sheds light on other um, aspects of what the church thought about certain things. And, I, and that's one of the examples there. It not only sheds light to know this about what the policy was, but yeah, you see <laughs> insights into relationships. And that's, it, it was kind of fascinating. It's kind of disturbing to see that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And of, of course, in the early days, um, you know, along with that, were all the ins and outs and messiness of um, um, polygamy. And, you know, you, you, you really get to see in these letters that go back and forth, just how messy it was on the ground. Exactly. Yes, and uh, how the whole um, polygamist, uh, I guess, roots um, over the years, after, even after the um, manifesto and in the next decade and a half or so when uh, plural marriages slowly stopped being performed, there was always the, the concern about... Uh, Celestial or eternal polygamy, right. and the question of women being sealed to more than one man, and while they were living, and then when they were dead, and and the same with second anointings, so that a woman be receive be anointed to a, a man after a temple sealing had been um, canceled, and and all that stuff, and all these were questions that continuously plagued the brethren about the women in the church, but the men, it was never. Never an issue. <laughs> well, that's you know the 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 Mormon theology: families are forever, and eternal marriages. Uh, you know, it's very appealing and it's very tidy until you get into the details. And I almost felt sorry for the brethren because they would have spent a colossal amount of time by by you know what comes in these books constantly dealing. I think there's one point uh, McKay writes where how many ceilings he had to like cancel, and that means he would have had to review the case and weigh the details and. It it just seemed like it would have been awful, awful to do, deal with all this stuff. Oh, yeah. In fact, I remember early on, one of the letters, and I, I can't remember which one it was right now. I know it has something to do with the woman being sealed to someone else um, other than the husband she had in life, or it has something to do with the, the, the temple cancellation. Someone wrote one of the brethren, um, I think it was Wilford Woodard, but I can't, I don't know for sure now. Um what they would do in this certain circumstance. And he said, well, let's basically let's cross that bridge when we come to it. Because they didn't really know. And so let's wait until we have an actual case before we rule on what to do in this particular case. So so they didn't really have all the answers, and they worked a lot of the stuff out as they went. And so, yeah, it affected individual lives who uh, of women, in this case, uh, as they hoped for something to happen or, or had their heart set on a certain... Uh, man or an ordinance or something that they felt they were entitled to only to have them have to uh, wrestle it out for a while and then sometimes get a, a negative answer. And so 
Yeah, so these policies didn't just fall out of the sky. Uh, none of them. As you, when you read the book, you see how so many things they had to just uh, wrestle with and go over and consider and um, you know delay and that type of thing before they really knew what they were going to do. And um, and again, what is this? Does this shed light on other aspects of of the brethren and and how they function and how? Uh, Revelation comes, you know. I think it certainly does. Um, Definitely, yeah. You're going to get the sense of that in a in a book like this uh, when they're trying to really uh, understand what they believe were the most prominent ordinances um, that one can have to gain eternal life, and they were still having to work out the details. That tells you a lot, I think, about how things are run on a day to day basis in other other areas. Yeah, definitely. And, and related to that, I was struck by, with the early saints, how thin the veil was for, for them. I mean, for us today, you know, we have these ceilings and stuff, um, but we, and we talk about it with the, 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 the dead in the abstract, but for them, it seemed more like concrete. Like they were practicing ceilings between dead people who hadn't necessarily been married or hadn't even known each other. They were sealing themselves to people who died three years before, you know, and it was just sort or of 20 years before. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, to exactly. us, it's, yeah. it's more of a reflection of what we're doing in this life. And to them, it was something, this was real and this was more important than what we were doing in life. They were building the afterlife. Yes, and that, that's, that's a very important one, and that really it does stand out in the book, and, and you really get a sense of, you know, of, uh, to the, yeah, what, what, it, what it meant to them, and um, that there wasn't any set pattern of doing this stuff, that, and that it was perfectly okay. Well, you know, at first, when you go back even further, when uh, Baptisms from the Dead first uh, um, were announced by Joseph Smith, the whole concept that, uh, people would go run out to the river, baptize themselves alone on behalf of someone. Uh, see, I remember a woman ran out to the river and, and dunked herself for a deceased son, and that was perfectly fine. So there wasn't much that was, uh, I think, until things you know started off in the in the uh, Saint George Temple when Brigham Young saw a need to standardize things, standardize the endowment, and write it down. Because he knew there were other temples in the works in Manti and Logan and um, um, Salt Lake, and for the first time we were going to have temple presidents and these the temples all running at the same time. And before there was uh, the internet and or even phones <laughs> or anything like that. So can you imagine how, um, with a temple president having so much autonomy, how one temple would be run in one way, another, and another? And over time, that standardization, you know, didn't take effect right away because some of these uh, uh, practices of stealing people, yeah, just kind of playing Cupid, uh, <laughs> people who didn't know they were, you know, they were long gone, but, you know, some relative or a friend playing Cupid on their behalf. Mm-hmm. Uh, in time, all these things were, were eliminated, but it, it took a while. And it started, I think, with just some basic thoughts about standardizing, and then it just took a while that it went from there. And I'm surprised at things that I thought were long dead would still continue. You know, on that note, there was one from the 60s where, um, uh, you know, they were talking about sealing, and I, I think the case was a, a si- sister who was older who wanted to seal herself to an- another older couple's man. 
Um, so there was a man and woman who had been sealed, married for a long time. There was another single sister in the in the ward who was in her 80s, and she wanted to seal herself to the man. And the response was, "Well, if he's dead, then you can do it. You can do it. Um, if she's alive and he's dead, you can do it." I, that just I thought that sort of thing ended like in the in the 1860s or 70s, but you know there it was 40 years ago. Yeah, that one really surprised me too. And so I got a sense from that that. Yeah, they'll, they'll still make exceptions for certain reasons. You know, if someone had their heart set on something, it was this, this way to appease them, I guess, that I guess, I think in a lot of ways they didn't see, especially when people are dead, you know, they have a harder <laughs> time seeing any damage that could come as a result of it or anything like that. It's like, well, we'll appease her in this and, and what, you know, what can happen? He's gone. She'll be happy. And you get a sense that once in a while you, and, and you saw exceptions like that here and there. Uh-huh. Um, in the book, and so that was kind of uh, fun too to to see that. Yeah, and there was a point. I think it's it's the, yeah, it was a, it's a little disturbing in the sense that you know what are the actual rules anyway? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's, it's not clear. And I think there was a debate. It was either in the fifties or sixties between the brethren where. There was the one camp that said, well, you know, especially with the messiness of sisters, seal them to as many men as they were married to, and then it'll all sort out in the afterlife. <laughs> and the other side was, well, don't seal them to any any of them, then it'll all work out in the afterlife. And then there was another camp yeah. which was sort of just scratching its head. And you could see that it, and it, it, that, that continues to today. The, the policies are still murky and unclear about that. Oh, yeah. Um why uh, I remember somebody said the reason the millennium will be a thousand years is going to take us that long to clean up the mess we've made of it. Mm-hmm. As long as you show up to the afterlife, <laughs> you feel like you're safe in a lot of ways. <laughs> but yeah, either to, either to clean things up or to, to stall on certain things and have them, have them done there. But afterlife comes in handy. To, yeah. To, yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, uh, uh, to move to another topic that I thought was important but not as important as the book makes it sound is is second anointings i mean in the 19th century from from the documents this was a this was a big thing oh yeah and again you know this is something that um joseph smith revealed a year or so after having uh, revealed the endowment and uh and then uh revealed the second anointing from there and then after his death uh, Brigham Young really escalated the second anointing as part of the Nauvoo uh, ordinances that were performed for that two months. He included uh, plural wives for the first time, which Joseph Smith didn't do in receiving the second anointing. And from there, um, it just uh, it, it it grew in importance, and it was also so much like you say, so common, um, you know, relatively speaking, I guess. To the point that there were even statistics. I don't know how many years they did this, but they uh, put the statistics for second anointing in the conference reports. Right. Yeah. They would, they would baptisms and you know all that type of thing. They put second anointing in there. So the fact that the ordinance existed, you know, was not a secret. And um, so, how did it become and, a secret? I mean, it is it well, is pretty much a secret nowadays. It is, yeah, and I think that there are a couple of reasons for that. I think one is because the less you talk about something, the less you know about it, even I think from the hierarchy's perspective. And I think the number of, of and I was, this is just a guess on my part, but I think it's an accurate guess that, um, the brethren themselves know much less about the second anointings than, <laughs> than they would have, um, 75 years ago, and they know much less about them than historians. Do now, 
Right. Um, I remember uh, in doing some research a few years ago on this, um, when David Berger did his article on the second anointing in dialogue, um, uh, Richard Hunter, who is the son of Howard W. Hunter, showed the article to his dad while they were staying in a hotel room. And Howard Hunter very candidly told his son that he, well, he thought the article was okay to publish, but he didn't really know if the ordinance was uh, essential for salvation or not, and didn't really know a whole lot about it. Um, where back in Joseph Smith's day, Brigham Young, and while the ordinance was so common, it was viewed as essential to salvation, and it was the crowning ordinance, obviously, because it was what Bruce Armour Coffey always talked about, having your calling election made sure in that. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, the re- one of the reasons it fell into disuse was because, uh, yeah, we kind of went back and forth a little bit, too. At first, when the church was smaller, the president of the church could uh, make recommendations for second anointing. Obviously, in Nauvoo, that would have been very easy. Um, in when the church first came west, it would have been much easier for the president of the church to take on that responsibility. But uh, later, it went to uh, bishops. Uh, bishop could could make a recommendation, and then uh, then it was limited to state presidents to do that, and then it was limited to apostles. Uh, and obviously, as the church grew, an apostle doesn't know isn't going to know people outside of his own circle. And so they would only get recommendations when they went to visit a stake, and a stake president would, would recommend. But they weren't actively trying to um, get candidates for second anointings when they were out. And so as the church grew and as the number of people who could make recommendations uh, shrank, the, uh, the ordinance just fell into disuse, and nobody really seemed to care except George Richards. Right. George Richards had been president of the, of the uh, Salt Lake Temple, was a member of the Quorum of the Twelve, uh, was the father of the Grand Richards, who a lot of people would remember. Um, he was the one who um, initiated most changes to the temple ceremonies that you know in the, in the 20s and and after that until his death, I guess, in 1950. Um, and so, and everything he would suggest, pretty much to the brethren, they would accept. And so he saw this himself in this role of really improving um, the temple uh, for the people. And um, so as part of that role, I think he saw himself too as um, the one who would, you know, persuade the brethren to uh, reconsider the second anointings. And when he went to them and he wrote them a long letter, and he was just very distraught about, I think he said, over the last decade and a half or so, there had only been a handful of second anointings, which... And he made a comparison for the years prior to that and how common it was. And he said, I, I can't believe the Lord is happy that we've let this ordinance just slip away and fall into disuse like this. And so as a result of that, they it almost seemed like it was to appease him. They went ahead and said, okay, we'll go ahead and do it. Round up the brethren and haven't had theirs done, and, and they'll get theirs done. And that's kind of what it seems to have been limited since then. Um, I'm sure there are others who... Uh, I'm sure Temple, you know, I'm just guessing, but Temple presidents, um, um, you know, the general authorities, um, a few other faithful agent members still have them done, but it's so limited now that nobody even knows about it. And, uh, and I think, uh, had George Richards not written that letter, I don't even think we would have, we'd really be having the ones we're having today even. It pretty much had fallen away, and, and no one in the hierarchy really cared at the time. 
to yeah, continue yeah. It, it, it's it's it seems really strange, and I, I'm sure there's more yet to be discovered there as to the as to the falling out of it. But you know, like we said, it, it was just it was very very important, and people um, got them done for their deceased relatives, and and it was just of paramount importance. And then it just sort of slowly goes away. And you know, I've I've, I've heard other people talk about it. it's sort of risen again in importance but still low level but basically like you said you know um, probably mission presidents in 70s and some of their older children are getting them but it's it's fascinating that most of the church doesn't even know about something that was so important you know, uh, for example you know the holy of holies in the in the temple um, is built specifically for that purpose and everybody knew that for, for a while and now you hear all sorts of misinformation about that that they've lost what what that was all about yeah, yeah, really so, and I um, and I and I'm a little puzzled by that because you know in, in Joseph Smith's day, uh, Brigham Young and and beyond, um, the second anointing was was essential to salvation. Why would we have performed them for the dead right. if it was just kind of like a little optional ordinance that wasn't necessary? Would we have done all that for the dead? It was very clear at the time that it was essential. And by Howard Hunter's, by 1983, when Howard Hunter saw that article, and he didn't really know, and um, and the fact that it's so limited now, I know when other people have, well, at least one of the letters in the in the book, when somebody had inquired, um, I think it was Harold Bailey, um, at least someone contemporary with him, said that, you know, no need to worry, you've got all the ordinances you need for salvation. And he was saying, you don't need the second anointing. So, um Interesting how that changed, you know, how something like that that was, you know, for salvation is no longer and, and not even really understood fully now. Yep. But at the same time, it is performed occasionally. Um, yes, Friday, I talked to someone who's a current sitting temple president mm-hmm. um, who's getting a copy of the book. He's got the other two, and he's excited to get this one. And he's, I asked him if the second anointing was still performed today, and he's not president of the Salt Lake Temple, he's in, in another temple, so there's a, uh, you know, some people have wondered, well, if it's done, is it only in Salt Lake, or is it done in another temple still? And um, I could tell he wanted to say something, but he just, he <laughs> said, you know, something I really can't, and I go, you can't talk about it? He goes, well, yeah. <laughs> and I said, well, I understand, um, but, uh, but he clearly knew enough. What that hesitancy on his part told me is that, yes, it's still performed, and it's probably performed in his temple, too, but very limited, and the fact that the ordinance even exists um, is something that's too sensitive to talk about. Right. Now, not of course, whether you've had it or not. You know? Right. Wow. Yeah, the, and the other one that um, has fallen into disfavor, which was even more of a mess, which was adoptions, um, where uh, men would be sealed to other men, and that was slowly stamped out. But once again, I thought it was stamped out sooner, sooner than it, than it was um, as evident in the book. Yeah, and just like a lot of this stuff, it would be in general, it would be stamped out, and then a few exceptions would trickle in. Right. And uh, and one exception, which you probably saw, which was really the most disturbing one in the book to me, is. Uh, and this was an ex- not even an exception to a well. It was an exception to the to the rule of to the law of sealing in general. But that was the case of of Jane Manning James. Yes, uh, this one was being sealed. The most disturbing. Yeah, it was very disturbing because 
on so many levels because one was, you know, eternity is a long, long time. <laughs> and so you don't get a sense that they had any um, thought of the status of blacks changing. Yeah. Um, to, to ever be, at least in, in the church's eyes or in society, in society's eyes first and then the church's eyes later, which is kind of how it goes, um, that they would be seen as equal and have equal blessings and equal privileges. And um, she, she had lived with the Smiths in Nauvoo, and wasn't her request originally, when she was an older woman, to actually be sealed to Joseph Smith as a, as a plural wife? Well, I know that she wanted to be sealed to his family, and that Emma had, had made her a promise. So it's a little bit vague on what that would have been, whether it would have been like a, just kind of like an adoption where men were sealed to, to men uh, in, a, in a chain of father to son. Uh-huh. If she hoped for something like that, um, I, I don't know, she probably, if she saw it as a plural wife, I don't know that, that, that anyone else would have even thought in a million years that she would have had any, any hope for that. But I think she was, she thought that she had something coming based on Emma's promise. Uh-huh. And, but it was her blackness that uh, forbade any of that. And it was, and again, it was a, it was a way to, a, a compromise to keep her happy that they feel there is a servant. So is this the so only... That was the best they could do, um, without feeling her as a, as a servant to someone for eternity. Is this the only case that you know of that, that uh, sealing as a servant took place? Yeah. But it's also the only case where someone, uh, I don't know, a, a black member like her was adamant about having something done. Mm-hmm. And she didn't seem to give up too easily. So, so that was her way of accommodating her and, and getting her out of their hair, I think. Um, and, but, uh, and I don't really know what, what, how, what they thought about it, to be honest, because, it's, again, it was something that hadn't been done that I'm aware of. It was not done before or since. Um, it's because she was insistent, so it's like they came up with an ordinance for her. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how happy she was um, with that, really. It, uh, I couldn't imagine... Um, so Being satisfied one. with that one. <laughs> <laughs> I guess there wasn't much other um, afterlife kind of anything to look forward to for, for her besides that, really. I mean, yeah. at that time. Yeah. And uh, so I, don't, I would be very curious to know if they've officially undone that ordinance, canceled it, or if they just figured out it was a historical anomaly, and we know nothing's going to really come of it in the hereafter. And it's kind of on the book still. Uh, I'd be interested to know. Maybe the book will prompt somebody to let us know about that. I don't know. Well, see, I, I got the sense from the from reading the book that the books are a mess. You know, there was one, there was one point where they were dealing with post-manifesto polygamy um, ceilings um, of people who had, who'd, who'd passed away, and then or marriages, do they legitimize them with ceilings for the dead? You know, and I, I guess, I, you know, I never think about all these little edge cases that they have to deal with all the time, and it just it just seems like such a mess to me. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, uh, yeah, and along those lines, too, uh, you, could, you could see when there isn't a hard, fast rule about something, or, or if a president of the church, in the case of David O'Kay, for example, kind of on a whim decided to make a, an exception or this and that. 
uh, raised more questions down the road than it really answered. Yes. For example, other things with the with the blacks. Um, when you know, white a few cases where white couples were adopting black children, and um, David McKay first, you know, he, he wouldn't allow any type of feeling between white parents and black children um, because the child was black. And then um, he allowed it, uh, and then he discouraged uh, people from adopting like that. So if somebody hadn't adopt, done the adoption yet, and they were inquiring to the church whether this was appropriate or if they did adopt these children, whether they could be sealed. Um, he told them, you know, just don't even do the adoption. But they already had, in one case, he allowed them to be sealed. Um, but it was all these, these um, exceptions or these questions that came to McKay, they weren't very far apart from each other. And you could tell they were right. dealing with issues as they came and were suddenly coming up with new policy that really, that they didn't seem to have to at least wrestle with as a group. I think McKay wrestled with some of this stuff on his own and then just uh, administratively made decisions that had an impact, you know, for good after that. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I get think, the sense from the book that it's not so much that in 1978 there was a big change, it's just the other policy collapsed under its own weight. Yeah, yeah, and I think McCain was very cognizant of that, and um, and Kimball was too. And by, by President Kimball announcing a temple for Brazil in 1974, when use of that temple would have been, it would have been so confusing for for the only ones being able to use it would be visitors from outside of South America. Mm -hmm. And so the point was to put a temple there. So um, I'm just glad that policy changed before the temple was dedicated. I think the timing was such temple was dedicated in the late fall of 1978 and and the revelation on the blacks came in June of 78, but had it not, I don't know what they would have done with that. Temple. So yeah, that certainly would have collapsed. But I think if, uh, if they hadn't made the change, they, I'm sure they knew it was coming. But um, but yeah, uh, again, it was a situation where they were just faced with stuff that uh, they hadn't dealt with a whole lot, and the case was having to come up with you know some kind of a ruling quickly in some of these cases, and yeah, they couldn't really kept up that policy a whole lot longer in a changing world like that. And I think it helps too that. We talk so much about, you know, black men couldn't hold the priesthood, but black women, you know, were, were banned from the temple as well, even though they didn't require right. priesthood. So the, the black man was much more than just priesthood, you know. Absolutely. It, it kept families from being able to, to uh, single women who priesthood would have been an issue, uh, or families in general having the, the sealing ordinances and all that stuff, all of that. And banned. even... Even women married to black men um, weren't well, allowed to continue, right? Well, all all women married to yeah. non temple people weren't allowed to come in. So. Well, this was in 1964. I don't I don't know if that other policy was still in effect. It was. Well, there was a case of a woman who had already had her endowments and married a black man. Yeah. And her bishop told her that her endowments wouldn't even be effective. And right. and President McKay had to intervene and said, "No, her her endowments are still." Effective, but she's still an endowment of a saint. Um, but she can't be issued another recommend while she's, you know, married to the, to her husband. And, but there's no reason why she can't be active in her ward and stake. So right. the bishop didn't know. And so the president of the church had to intervene because the bishop was going to take it a step further and just thought that that was how it was done. But again, they were dealing with something they probably 
had never dealt with. Um, we're just trying to deal with it on some whim, you know. And uh, so there's that could have been much more disastrous for her. Um, may have even caused her to go inactive or leave the church if President McKay had intervened. And so, um, you know, the case of not knowing what the rules were because there wasn't an established rule. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the the book really deals a lot with the where the um, abstract policies, like I was saying before, meet the you know the, where the rubber meets the road of real life. I was um, uh, amused that the, the, one of the big themes throughout the book was the garment and the wearing of the garments and the changing of the garments and the and, and I, I was struck by how uncomfortable garments must have been up until the 1920s. Um, wow. Oh yeah, if you could imagine um, in an era before air conditioning too, and we've got these uh, <laughs> garments going down to the ankles and to the wrists um, to be worn in, at all times and that. And when people wanted to make changes, uh, they'd be accused of mutilating them, and they were reminded that the temple garment, uh, the style was revealed from heaven. I remember uh, one of the brethren said that when younger people or others wanted to uh, make changes to accommodate some other clothing. So that was the feeling at the time, but over time, they got shorter and shorter, and, and in 1979, the two-piece garment was uh, introduced and that. But you could see their concern there, too. Um, they were concerned in some of these letters uh, and discussions amongst them were showing uh, that young people were having a harder time uh, uh, want, you know, wearing the garments or thinking that, there was a, that they were necessary. Uh, they wanted to keep up with fashion and that. And the brethren, of course, thought that, well, fashion is of the devil. You know, <laughs> worldly, because it was a sign of worldliness. Right. If you wanted to, to go with the world on some of the stuff. But in time, we've pretty much always come around uh, <laughs> to do that. And I think when they have time to think about it, I think once, once, a, once a worldly fashion has been a fashion for a while, it seems the norm, and then it doesn't seem worldly anymore. And then right. we think, well, it's been around a while, so now we can accommodate that. So it's not, yeah, it's not that the fashion is worldly, it's just that it's been around. And so, uh, so in all those cases, you know, once they were able to make accommodations once, it was easier after that uh, for them to do it. And then the question was, well, do we wear the old style in the temple and wear the new style outside the temple? It was harder to, to change the, 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 the old style ceremonial garment out and then eliminate that from the temple because that seems such a part of the temple for them. But at the time, they realized that there, that wasn't, there wasn't much of a point in that either because someone coming through for their endowment was giving the old style while the person placing the endowment on them was wearing the new style. Right. The, the temple worker. And it was, and it was so, interesting. It was interesting to see that, that progression in the book where there was a time when old style you know, stayed in the temple, and then people were kind of looked down upon wearing new style outside the temple. And then there came a point, like 30 years later, where people who wore the old style outside the temple were looked down upon. Yeah. And nowadays, yeah, you wear one down to your wrists and ankles here. I assume you're a <laughs> fundamentalist, you know. So I think my... Oh, okay. Go ahead. Part, oh, uh, go ahead. I was going to say, I think my favorite part of the book, and I can't remember who, who went to Joseph Fielding Smith, and was complaining about people wearing the old style garment, which of course the old style garment um, were were gapped up the up the front, and then there were ties, and they were the old like tape ties where you would take fabric and fold it over, so so the ties would have been thick. 
and and they, yeah. they, they they tied them up the front so you could tell somebody was gar- wearing garments because you'd see those bunches of the ties <laughs> but anyway he he says to 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 smith that there's people out, you know, wearing the old style outside the temple, and then Smith undoes his shirt <laughs> and shows him that he's wearing the old tie one, and he thinks that those are the those are the ones that were revealed by God, and those are the ones we should be wearing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that was a good one. And the story with the T. Edgar Lyon, you remember that one? Um, when he was he went to get his endowments. Uh-huh. Um, well, see, he was. Let's see, when was this event? He was born what, nineteen oh six or nineteen oh seven? It what, what, what so the the, the change was around twenty three, wasn't it? It would have been in the twenties. Um, well, there was, I'm not sure if it was, and again, I, um, there are a few changes that they, they made over time, and I can't remember which one this was, but he, he went to receive his endowments. The change had been approved, like, just, what, the day before or something like that, and, and when he went into the temple to get his endowments, the people in the washing and anointing room were just really freaked that he had these garments that they thought weren't approved and they had to call President Richard down <laughs> and let them know that no this is what we approved yesterday or <laughs> it was like the day before or something and they weren't going to let him uh, wear those garments <laughs> yeah he, he had the buttons going up the front which was not kosher <laughs> uh, and then you know the the, the, the the surprising is you know they they had the collar on them which they would have not been able to show so they would have kept that bunched up underneath their clothes and then, of course, they were, you know, for 80 years, Mormons wore garments with no, um, how do you say it politely, with no no, no crotch. They were just gapping right. open. Seems very uncomfortable to me. Yeah, exactly. And and you really get a sense with this, especially with the garment, um, that change is just so hard to make when you think, because something's been done a certain way for so long, you just assume that that's the way it's supposed to be. And and that was the whole reason that they fought on this. You know, they were, I think they were waiting. They assumed the Lord had revealed this pattern and that he wasn't saying anything more about it, so that means it was gonna, they're just going to have to stay that way, and that's just the way it was. Um, but you get a sense, too, that, yeah, they, I'm sure they believed that, but at the same time, there was just this, just this difficulty in actually accepting that any kind of change could be could be done with those. And there were so many, and there were people who, when they approved the change, they thought that the you know the brethren were selling out, and one lady said, "I don't care if uh, Heber J. Grant you know tells me to wear the new garment. I'm sticking with the old one. That's the one that the Lord revealed." And so, um, and I would think that in most cases it would have been welcome, but some thought you know they just couldn't accept that change is hard. <laughs> so out of all the even stuff, even when it's uncomfortable, it's change. Even when it's uncomfortable <laughs> to wear something like that, they still don't want to do it. Right. Well, because they're doing it in the first place for the righteousness of it, so that's the mo- that's the of supreme importance. Yeah. If you've been wearing an old, yeah. itchy wool thing for eighty years, you know you don't want the young bucks to get away yeah, with some like, hey, nice linen to, underwear or anything like that. I had to do that for my whole <laughs> life. So, but so, yeah, and even when the change comes from official accounts, I remember when the the two piece ones were introduced. Um, I was on my mission at the time, but I when I came home, I was at Rick's College, and I went to the uh, distribution center there to buy some new ones and um, told the lady there how much I liked the, the two-piece ones. She was actually working at the distribution center and she just got kind of quiet and she said, well, to each his own, I guess. She's <laughs> <laughs> upset that I actually like the two-piece ones. So she was one of these that wasn't going to change either. You know? so, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, I have relatives who still refuse to wear the, the two-piecers. Yeah. 
<laughs> so so out of everything you know all this stuff you found in the book and and there's there's just tons of little little gems throughout the whole thing that we we don't have time to go into i, I want to know what your favorites were um i think um i suppose because i've always had an interest in um in black history as well you know even outside of mormonism and you know studying american social history and that uh, whenever there's anything with blacks that implied, you know, in society or in church, uh, inequality or there's something that blacks did to, to deserve this unequal status, that has always been um, fascinating and disturbing to me. And I suppose the the stuff on the blacks um, was I say favorite, not because I thought it was neat stuff, but because it, 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 I guess it put within me the, a, a large a concern that, um, and so that's what stood out, and that's what I kept looking for to try to understand. Because it, it's an area that wanted me to just to try to understand more why this was the way it was. And I know, you know, later on when um, the brethren made some changes in the uh, time frame, one with uh, for the dead for uh, receiving the ordinances that. Uh, um, they waited a the, the, the new rule was, and I can't remember what year this happened now, excuse me, but it happened, um, I don't know, 60s or 70s or so. Uh, if someone had died, as long as they were dead for a year, they could have the ordinances. They just didn't matter anymore if they were worthy. So a murderer, for example, um, could receive a temple ordinance if he'd been dead for a year. Uh, it wasn't always the case, and so they were always looking to to prove worthiness on people before they can be baptized. That for the dead, that was kind of a hard thing to really establish when someone's dead, how worthy they were. And so uh when that rule changed, they specifically said, um, you know, under the new policies, as long as someone's been gone a year, that's fine. And so this no longer applies to uh um, murderers and suicide victims, but it's still the policy is still in place for blacks. As long as they don't have Negro blood, they can be baptized after a year. And I remember thinking, you know, what, what did the blacks do, or, or what? why did that policy... Because when someone was dead, you know, we didn't care about the worthiness or anything, at least in the case of murderers, but blacks were still banned. Well, I guess they... Having these ordinances. And, um, yeah, that was disturbing to me, because, uh, again, we're extending back to the, into the, to the next life and things that we normally would have been concerned with, but it... Uh, still held out. I think it's because they they saw the black skin as being a permanent feature, whereas worthiness, um, like, you know, the the fact that maybe somebody murdered in this life, they could have a complete change of heart. And that was allowed, but you couldn't change your skin color. Well, unless a curse was removed, I guess, I don't know, but it might have seen a more permanent part of their composition, you know. Well, yeah, you can't repent for being black. Yeah, I guess, and or like you say, with the, the case of the curse. But with so many other things, you know, it's like once they were dead, you know, we'll leave it to the next life. And if they have to clean up this mess too, why not? You know, perform the ordinances, and then if they're valid, they're valid. If not, then they can clean it up later. But um, you know, they wouldn't accommodate that at all. And um, so I was, I was looking for things with. With that, because I was trying to, I'm always trying to get a greater understanding about, you know, historically what the church thought of, of blacks. 
and then and, and the policies, how they developed and what what how universal they thought the curse was or the reason behind their the ban was. So I found that stuff really interesting. Um I suppose the 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 changes to the garments and that, um because I could really get a sense that uh they were concerned about keeping the temple ordinances relevant to to people, especially young people. They had a concern all the time about the youth of the church, are they understanding these ordinances when they're performed for them? And um, young people didn't always want to wear the garments. So that, that prompted some changes uh, down the road. And I think just like when you look at the at the scriptures, you know, we uh, we see the scriptures as kind of a combination of instruction, stories, anecdotes, all these things that when you step back, you, you see a bigger picture. At least that's when someone accepts the standard works as coming from God. Um, that's how they're the Word of God, because uh, you stand back and see all this stuff kind of mixed together here, and it tells, supposedly, tells some kind of important story. And I think with a book like this, it's kind of the same thing. It's not a book of just instructions. You know, how boring would that be? But uh, by having the anecdotes in diaries, and you see the discussions amongst each other in that, and then you step back from there, you see a story being told. So I think, for me, the whole thing was just uh, intertwined uh it's so fascinating that it's hard for me really to say what my favorite was because for me, I just sit back and <laughs> see the story that's told out of this whole book. But um, but, but something specific, I would say the the, the stories with the changes in garments and the development of the and eventual decline of the, the ban against blacks were probably the things I found the most interesting. Yeah, definitely. Well, the, the book the book was fascinating. I I thought. Um... You know, for, just from the introduction, where where you sort of summed up the changes to to the, reading each of the of the elements, paints this picture uh, and brings the, the history to life in a way that that's like I said in the beginning is missing from a lot of the historical narrative of the church. So it's a wonderful, wonderful book. I I, I implore everybody to go out to read it. Of course, it's LDS Temple Worship, eighteen forty six to two thousand. The development of the documentary history available from Signature Books. I think it comes out um, this week. And um, then you get to go on your um, your nationwide tour of um, signing, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, there'll be a few, um, uh, hopefully locally, and and that. But uh, yeah, I, I just hope that uh, you know that, that people who like history will will enjoy it. And I'm, I'm hoping one of the things that might come out of it is that we, you know, it might prompt some further discussion on the second anointing. Um, I know on the negative side, uh, when David Berger gave his uh, uh, published his article on the second anointing in dialogue in 1983. The following general conference board, Kate Packer, made reference to that article uh, and said that uh, something effective people uh, who claim to be you know, faithful out of the saints will muddy the floors of the temple with their muddy boots or something like that. And it was a clear <laughs> reference to this, his article. So, wow. So, uh, who knows? Conference is in a few weeks, so maybe I'll be watching a little more closely, but what I would like it to, to prompt is a positive discussion um, and maybe a little transparency. Uh, Amen. I might be hoping for a lot, but uh, <laughs> might open the really? door for some discussion along those lines. Yeah, so. definitely. Well, that'd be nice. All right, Devery. Well, thanks for coming on. Well, thank you, and uh, thanks for having me. And yeah, there's a lot of stuff we could talk about on this probably all day, but uh, oh, definitely uh, I'm glad we were able to discuss this and hope that people will buy it and find it interesting. I agree. Thanks again. 
Thank you. All right, thank you. 